Book 4, Chapters 3 and 4 of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian. Translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. In the natural order of things, the statement of facts is followed by the verification. For it is necessary to prove the points which we stated with the proof in view. But before I enter on this portion, I have a few words to say on the opinions held by certain rhetoricians. Most of them are in the habit, as soon as they have completed the statement of facts, of digressing to some pleasant and attractive topic with a view to securing the utmost amount of favor from their audience. This practice originated in the display of the schools of declamation, and thence extended to the courts as soon as causes came to be pleaded, not for the benefit of the parties concerned, but to enable the advocates to flaunt their talents. I imagined that they feared that if the slender stream of concise statement, such as is generally required, were followed by the pugnacious tone inevitable in the arguing of the case, the speech would fall flat, owing to the postponement of the pleasures of a more expansive eloquence. The objection to this practice lies in the fact that they do this without the slightest consideration of the difference between case and case, or reflecting whether what they are doing will in any way assist them on the assumption that it is always expedient and always necessary. Consequently, they transfer striking thoughts from the places which they should have occupied elsewhere and concentrate them in this portion of the speech, a practice which involves either the repetition of a number of things that they have already said or their omission from the place which was really theirs owing to the fact that they have already been said. I admit, however that this form of digression can be advantageously appended, not merely to the statement of facts, but to each of the different questions, or to the questions as a whole, so long as the case demand, or, at any rate, permit it. Indeed, such a practice confers great distinction and adornment on a speech, but only if the digression fits in well with the rest of the speech, and follows naturally on what has preceded not if it is thrust in like a wedge parting what should naturally come together. For there is no part of a speech so closely connected with any other as the statement with the proof, though, of course, such a digression may be intended as the conclusion of the statement and the beginning of the proof. There will, therefore, sometimes be room for digression. For example, if the end of the statement has been concerned with some specially horrible theme, we may embroider the theme as though our indignation must find immediate vent. This, however, should only be done if there is no question about the facts. Otherwise, it is more important to verify your charge than to heighten it, since the horrible nature of a charge is in favor of the accused until the charge is proved. For it is just the most flagrant crimes that are the most difficult to prove. Again, a digression may be advantageous if, after setting forth the services rendered by your client to his opponent, you denounce the latter for his ingratitude, or, after producing a variety of charges in your statement, you point out the serious danger in which the advancement of such charges is likely to involve you. But all these digressions should be brief, for as soon as he has heard the facts set forth in order, the judge is in a hurry to get to the proof, and desires to satisfy himself of the correctness of his impressions at the earliest possible moment. Further, care must be taken not to nullify the effects of the statement 
by diverting the minds of the court to some other theme and wearying them by useless delay. But, though such digressions are not always necessary at the end of the statement, they may form a very useful preparation for the examination of the main question, more especially if, at first sight, it presents an aspect unfavorable to our case, if we have to support a harsh law or demand severe punishment. For this is the place for inserting what may be regarded as a second exordium, with a view to exciting or mollifying the judge or disposing him to lend a favoring ear to our proofs. Moreover, we can do this with all the greater freedom and vehemence at this stage of the proceedings, since the case is already known to the judge. We shall therefore employ such utterances as emollients to soften the harder elements of our statement, in order that the ears of the jury may be more ready to take in what we have to say in the sequel, and to grant us the justice which we ask. For it is hard to persuade a man to do anything against the grain. It is also important on such occasions to know whether the judge prefers equity or a strict interpretation of the law, since the necessity for such digression will vary accordingly. Such passages may also serve as a kind of peroration after the main question. The Greeks call this parekpasis, the Romans egressus or egressio, digression. They may, however, as I have said, be of various kinds and may deal with different themes in any portion of the speech. For instance, we may extol persons or places, describe regions, record historical or even legendary occurrences. As examples, I may cite the praise of Sicily and the rape of Proserpine in the Varines, or the famous recital of the virtues of Gnaeus Pompeius in the Procornelio, where the great order, as though the course of his eloquence had been broken by the mere mention of the general's name, interrupts the topic on which he had already embarked and digresses forthwith to sing his praises. Parekpasis may, I think, be defined as the handling of some theme, which must, however, have some bearing on the case, in a passage that involves digression from the logical order of our speech. I do not see, therefore, why it should be assigned a special position immediately following on the statement of facts any more than I understand why they think that the name is applicable only to a digression where some statement has to be made, when there are so many different ways in which a speech may leave the direct route. For whatever we say that falls outside the five divisions of the speech already laid down is a digression, whether it expresses indignation, pity, hatred, rebuke, excuse, conciliation, or be designed to rebut invective. Other similar occasions for digression on points not involved by the question at issue arise when we amplify or abridge a topic, make any kind of emotional appeal, or introduce any of those topics which add such charm and elegance to oratory, topics, that is to say, such as luxury, avarice, religion, duty, but these would hardly seem to be digressions as they are so closely attached to arguments on similar subjects that they form part of the texture of the speech. There are, however, a number of topics which are inserted in the midst of matter which has no connection with them, when, for example, we strive to excite, admonish, appease, entreat, or praise the judge. Such passages are innumerable. Some will have been carefully prepared beforehand, while others will be produced to suit the occasion or the necessity of the moment, 
if anything extraordinary should occur in the course of our pleading, such as an interruption, the intervention of some individual, or a disturbance. For example, this made it necessary for Cicero to digress even in the exordium when he was defending Milo, as is clear from the short speech which he made on that occasion. But the orator who makes some preface to the main question, or proposes to follow up his proofs with a passage designed to commend them to the jury, may digress at some length. On the other hand, if he breaks away in the middle of his speech, he should not be long in returning to the point from which he departed. Chapter 4 After the statement of facts, some place the proposition, which they regard as forming a division of a forensic speech. I have already expressed my opinion on this view. But it seems to me that the beginning of every proof is a proposition, such as often occurs in the demonstration of the main question, and sometimes even in the enunciation of individual arguments, more especially of those which are called epigeremata. But for the moment, I shall speak of the first kind. It is not always necessary to employ it. The nature of the main question is sometimes sufficiently clear without any proposition, especially if the statement of facts ends exactly where the question begins. Consequently, the recapitulation generally employed in the case of arguments is sometimes placed immediately after the statement of facts. The affair took place as I have described, gentlemen. He that laid the ambush was defeated. Violence was conquered by violence, or rather, I should say, audacity was crushed by valor. Sometimes proposition is highly advantageous, more especially when the fact cannot be defended, and the question turns on the definition of the fact, as, for example, in the case of the man who has taken the money of a private individual from a temple. We shall say, My client is charged with sacrilege. It is for you to decide whether it was sacrilege, so that the judge may understand that his sole duty is to decide whether the charge is tantamount to sacrilege. The same method may be employed in obscure or complicated cases, not merely to make the case clearer, but sometimes also to make it more moving. This effect will be produced if we at once support our pleading with some such words as the following. It is expressly stated in the law that for any foreigner who goes up on to the wall, the penalty is death. You are undoubtedly a foreigner, and there is no question but that you went up onto the wall. The conclusion is that you must submit to the penalty. For this proposition forces a confession upon our opponent, and to a certain extent accelerates the decision of the court. It does more than indicate the question, it contributes to its solution. Propositions may be single, double, or manifold. This is due to more than one reason. For several charges may be combined, as when Socrates was accused of corrupting the youth and of introducing new superstitions, while single propositions may be made up of a number of arguments, as for instance when Aeschines is accused of misconduct as an ambassador, on the ground that he lied, failed to carry out his instructions, wasted time, and accepted bribes. The defense may also contain several propositions. For instance, against a claim for money, we may urge, your claim is invalid, for you had no right to act as agent, nor had the party whom you represent any right to employ an agent. Further, he is not the heir of the man from whom it is asserted that I borrowed the money, nor am I his debtor. These propositions can be multiplied at pleasure, but it is sufficient to give an indication of my meaning. 
If propositions are put forward singly with the proofs appended, they will form several distinct propositions. If they are combined, they are all under the head of partition. A proposition may also be put forward unsupported, as is generally done in conjectural cases. The formal accusation is one of murder, but I also charge the accused with theft. Or it may be accompanied by a reason. Gaius Cornelius is guilty of an offense against the state, for when he was tribune of the plebs, he himself read out his bill to the public assembly. In addition to these forms of proposition, we can also introduce a proposition of our own, such as, I accuse him of adultery, or may use the proposition of our opponent, such as, the charge brought against me is one of adultery. Or finally, we may employ a proposition which is common to both sides, such as, the question in dispute between myself and my opponent is which of the two is next of kin to the deceased who died intestate. Sometimes, we may even couple contradictory propositions, as, for instance, I say this, my opponent says that. We may at times produce the effect of a proposition, even though it is not in itself a proposition, by adding after the statement of facts some phrase such as the following. These are the points on which you will give your decision, thereby reminding the judge to give special attention to the question and giving him a fillip to emphasize the point that we have finished the statement of facts and are beginning the proof, so that when we start to verify our statements, he may realize that he has reached a fresh stage where he must begin to listen with renewed attention. End of chapter 4